Hi, my name is Cassie Prolongo, and I'm a science communicator at the Bay Area Environmental Research Institute here at NASA Ames. And if you could please take a moment and introduce yourself as well. Sure. Hi, Cassie. Yeah, nice to meet you. Nice to meet uh, you, My too. name is uh, Alok Srasta. So I'm a senior engineer at the Code SG, which is the Earth Science Division at the NASA Ames Research Center. So I started at Ames since last November, which is November 8th of 2021. So since then, I've been working with, with the division, specifically in the Airborne Sensor Facility Lab, where my responsibility is mostly looking at the calibration and validation and maintaining the instruments that we maintain at, at the ASF, which is the Airborne Sensor Facility Lab in, in, in the Ames. That's awesome. Welcome aboard. I've been told when you're at, you know, NASA, if, if you've been there, although you will talk about this later, you've been at NASA Langley before, but at NASA Ames, you've been there for less than a year. So you're still a newbie. Welcome aboard. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you, Cass. Yeah. And I thought that that we could talk a little bit about your role. In fact, backing up a little bit, you have quite an interesting career history. I know that you were at Boulder, Colorado before, and I think you worked as a calibration scientist. And then previous to that, you were at NASA Langley as a research scientist. But you're both a scientist and an engineer, which is really unique. How did you end up going down this route? Sure, yeah, that's a pretty great question, right? When I get to talk about me, it's pretty exciting for me, <laughs> so sure. So going back to my educational background, right, my, my undergraduate is in electronics engineering, which is from Nepal. So I'm originally from Nepal, so I did my undergraduate back in Nepal and worked there for a couple of a couple of years for the telecommunication company, which is uh, the Nepal Telecommunication as a contractor. Then I thought maybe I need to get more higher educations, which is pretty at those time, uh, which is pretty limited back in Nepal. So I came to United States in 2007 as a as a student doing my master's in electrical engineering at South Dakota State University in wow. Brookings, South Dakota. For a couple of years, I worked there as a graduate research assistant, as well as once I graduated, I worked there for a couple of months um, as an imaging engineer. Both of those roles involved working with lots of satellite sensors, especially, mm. especially doing the on-orbit calibrations, or we call it the post-launch calibrations, which means once the satellite is on the orbit, there are various techniques where we can look at the different targets on the Earth to see the stability of the instruments or how instrument is behaving on orbit. I'm sure we'll go into more detail further later on, but that's how my journey of calibration and validation started. So when I started that position, my advisor, uh, Dr. Dennis Halder from South Dakota State University, he's, he's retired now from that university, but he was a great mentor who introduced me to, to this area. And the mm -hmm. first question when I, when I went to his office, he asked me, where do you see yourself in the next five years? <laughs> oh, gosh, every interview <laughs> question that I've yeah, ever had, I pretty swear. Common <laughs> yeah, pretty common question, right? But then I said, because by that time I had worked in the lab for a month or two, and then I was introduced to various uh, various like satellite sensors. And most of those satellite sensors were from the NASA, right? The USCS and the NASA. So I told him, I would like to work for NASA in the next five years. <laughs> See, you put it out there. Into yeah, the I put it out to him and he was... <laughs> Okay, it's going to be challenging, but I think you can do it. That's what uh, he said during that time. 
after three years, when, when I graduated from South Dakota State University in 2010, I got an offer from SSAI, which is the Science System Applications, Inc., which is located in Virginia. And it's a Hampton, Virginia, and it's a contractor for NASA Langley Research Center. So I was working as a contractor. I started working for the NASA Langley Research Center as a contractor. During all that time, I had a master's and undergrads in engineering degree. But when I worked there as a research scientist, my role was to work in the calibration of some of the Earth Irby sensors, which are called Earth Radiation Budget Experiment Scanner and Non-Scanner Instruments, which was launched in like pretty early, like 1985 timeframe, right? But now in, uh, when I started working, there was newer sensors, similar kind of measurement, but our technology was advanced. So it's a new kind of sensors, which is called series. So series was, Irby was the precursor to series, right? So Irby has the data from 1985 to around 2000, and in 1998, series started measuring similar kind of sensors. So if you right. combine the data sets from Irby and series together, you have a long record time record of data sets starting from 1985 all the way to the current period, right? So in order to do those long-term time series kind of analysis, we have to merge the merge any gap in the data sets arising from the instrument differences as well as the how you process the data like the algorithm differences you have to remove those differences from the two different sensors to create a long-term data series that's my primary role was to remove any uh, differences in the data sets due to the instrument as well as due to the algorithm differences so that involved a lot of like uh, understanding of the science as well so I thought okay. this is very interesting. I have, I, I now understand the instruments part, but to remove the algorithm differences, the data processing differences, I have to understand the science behind it. And that's when I started my PSD, which is the part-time PSD at the Hampton, Hampton University. I enrolled in the atmospheric science department, which is, was one of the data sets that's what's being collected by those sensors. So those hmm. sensors are collecting the climate data records. So I was involved in that. So, so that's how I got into the science as well. So I worked there for almost eight years from 2010 to 2018. And as you mentioned before joining Ames, I moved yeah. to Colorado for the uh, NEON projects, the National Ecological Observatory Network, which is fully funded by the National Science Foundation but managed by the Battelle here in Colorado. Before joining Battelle, uh, most of my ex experience was working with the sensors on the orbit, meaning all the calibrations was done on the orbit, right? Most of the comparison and calibration and validation work is done on the on orbit. During that time, I didn't have much experience. I had the understanding, but I didn't have much working experience how it is being done in the lab. So that's how I got into the Battelle, the NEON projects, which flies hyperspectral instruments called NES, uh, the NEON Imaging Spectrometer, which is custom built by the JPL for that project and is based upon the Avery's uh, next gen instruments. That full story I'm seeing like the book and the chapters and the page turning and then it 
coming to Ames, which, you know, has a history of uh, airborne, a very strong history of airborne science here. So you're working in the airborne science facility. So are you helping to manage a lot of these instrumentations that's going on, some of these science aircraft? What exactly does that involve? There are three primary ASF instruments, the airborne instruments, right? The one is the EMAS, which is called Enhanced uh, Master Instruments. And there is a master, which is the Moody's and Astern, uh, Aster Airborne Simulator. And the third is the newer instruments, is a hyperspectral instrument, which is the Picard. So the, my role there is to make sure those three instruments are ready when there is a field campaign to fly those instruments and collect the data. What that means is we have to do a lot of the instrument checkup, right? We have to check whether the instrument's performance is good enough or not to go in, in to go into the flight and collect the data and make sure the data that we collect in the file are in the field or in the flights are accurate enough. We make sure the lab, those instruments are calibrated fully in the lab, as well as after the flight, uh, we do the post-flight calibration as well and make sure there is no change in the instruments during the pre and the post-flight uh, post-flight, so that we make sure the data we have is accurate enough. And you worked before with satellite instrumentation. Now, these are all instrumentation that are going on aircraft. So what are some of the challenges or the pros really for having instrumentation on aircrafts as opposed to in a satellite on a satellite yeah so most of my experience as you as you just said like in the nasa when i was working at the nasa language research center was the satellite sensors but the my most recent experience working at the the nes which is the neon imaging spectrometer that's that's a hyperspectral instrument but it's an airborne instrument mm. So I had mm -hmm. some of the experience with airborne flight instruments with that. And all of three uh, instruments that we have in the ASF is also the airborne instruments as well. But as, yeah. you, as you said, like there are lots of challenges the, with the airborne instruments. Like what you can do is you can bring it back. If something, if you see something wrong with the instruments, you can bring it back to the lab and open your instruments up and then fix fix the problem. With the satellite's instruments, once mm -hmm. in the orbit, if something breaks or something. That's it. That's it. You look at the data, model model those, whatever the error or the systematic biases you see in the system, you model with the data and try to correct your data sets. There is nothing yeah. much you can do on the instruments. But we do have that flexibility on, on the airborne sensors. If there is something breaks, we can bring it back, fix it, send it back here again. Yeah. And the, some of the advantage with the airborne, as I said, that's the one of the main advantage. But the disadvantage is the satellite, depending upon which orbit you are, you have a global coverage of the Earth, right? You can you can go anywhere on the Earth and then take the global measurement. And then it's and you have a long, long time series of those data sets. Whereas right. with the airborne, you have a you have a regional coverage, like you focus on some part of the Earth to collect the data and process on those. So you have a regional coverage, and then your time series is very limited on those regions. So those are right. some of the disadvantages of the of the airborne platform. There are other advantages of the airborne platform as well, because before you launch your instruments to the satellite, you want to you want to see how the instrument behaves. So the airborne provides you a platform to see how the instrument is behaving once it is launched in the space. So the airborne can provide those kind of advantages to you to make sure that once it is launched into the orbit, it functions as it's supposed to be. 
like if you want to develop some kind of algorithms, right, for for the data that you collect from the spaceport, you mix you can you can improve your algorithm by collecting the data, putting those sensors on the on the airborne platform, on the suborbit orbital platform. You can collect some data, you can improve your algorithms and make sure your algorithms is ready to process the data once the sensor is the space. So airborne pro provides some kind of the algorithm development as well as the calibration and validation of your sensors before it's launched to the satellite. That's amazing. With some of the airborne science things that are coming up, they they want planes to measure certain, you know, certain things, especially like wildfires and, you know, measuring going through smoke, smoke plumes and everything. That can have a real benefit to science. You know, of course, having having both is a very big benefit, but having it on the planes, the science planes is a real big benefit for immediate science. It is. Yeah. It helps a lot like if you if we have a limited understanding of something or like some data processing, then the airborne data is very useful in that scenario. Like you can prove your algorithms to for different aspects of the steps of algorithm development before it's being sent to the to the orbit. So that helps a lot. And going back to the atmospheric, even if it's in the satellite, the, the data that depending upon which uh, wavelength you are looking at, right? If you are looking at the SWIR, which is the south wave infrared region from the visible. So so the, in that case, the light, sunlight comes from the atmosphere to the surface, and then it reflects back from the atmosphere to your the spaceborne sensors. You do have to take care of your atmospheric effects, even though you are at the space. That's where the airborne sensor helps a lot to understand what is the atmospheric effect on your data so that you can remove those effects, atmospheric effects from your data sets from the spaceborne sensors. Fantastic. Thanks for explaining that. That was a really lovely overview of all the stuff that you've been working on. But I want to take it back a little bit. Take me back to young Alok when he was back in Nepal and he decided that he wanted to go into engineering. Was there a spark for something? What were some of your earliest memories of maybe seeing science or research like in action? Yeah, uh, so when I was young, I was really fascinated by how the, the television works, which was, <laughs> <laughs> which I was when it. I was young, like the television in Nepal was like a little bit newer stuff. And then I was very excited with, with what we can see on the television. And then my, my dad... Um, He's very into like like the audiovisual kind of thing, and he he like usually bought lots of electronics item in the house, and that's where I got into into the electronics uh, engineering, and from the beginning I had been very good with the math, and then I was always fascinated by like the tape recorder, like your all the cassettes player and the TVs, and that's how I I was very interested in the engineering. I think. That's the reason I went into the engineering, especially with the electronics engineer back in Nepal. So were you the type of person where you would buy something and say, and people would say, oh, that's really cool. And you're like, yeah, but I'm going to take it apart and see what, what makes it tick inside. Yeah, yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that brings me one memory. My dad bought, bought a new like cassette player, like the cassette in the past, there was like the cat, those, those, the magnetic tape player, right? Uh -huh, my dad, yep. my dad brought it home the first day and then I broke it the first day. <laughs> I opened everything and I started cleaning stuff and the, I was young, right? I, I started cleaning with some kind of acid material and then the plastic <laughs> inside it all like melted away. <laughs> oh my, my god. Dad was like, wow, this is the first day we bought and then you broke it on the first day. 
You're like, I'll fix it. Maybe. No, I won't. I'm sorry. <laughs> it's gone. Uh, yeah. Well, my fix it tool when I was back in the eight, cause I also had a cassette player is we had pencils to fix. You remember the cassette tapes and you'd have to wind the tape. Yeah. That was, that was how, that was my quote unquote engineer. No, it wasn't engineering at all, but that's how I fixed my cassette players. <laughs> God, it was terrible. I would pull the the string. I was like, this looks really cool. And then I couldn't listen to my Madonna tape. So sure. it wasn't the best thing to do. You know, you, you talked a little bit about your dad being a good source of inspiration for you. And you mentioned also another professor who who's now retired. I'm curious what you would want to say to maybe young people who are looking to go into earth sciences. And again, I have you have such a unique and interesting blend with your background and being both a scientist and engineer. I know there are other people out here that are, who maybe want to do this. You know, they want to maybe do something engineer, maybe go into science or anything. What would you want to say to like young people who want to go into earth science and maybe want to have something where they're both a scientist and an engineer? It's probably difficult. Or what would you say to, to young people? One of the challenging thing for me was I was doing my PhD in atmospheric science, right, which I was learning from my work and then applying that knowledge to to my work uh, to to uh, during my PhD. So when I was doing my PhD, as I mentioned earlier, it was a part-time PhD, not a full-time. I was working full-time and then doing the uh, the PhD part-time in, at the university. A little bit of challenging during that time, and I I had I had my first newborn that time in 2013. Oh my gosh. So, so all of the wow. things were happening at the same time. Again, like my wife supported me a lot. I thought at one point of th- time, I said, okay, I might be able, I might have to drop this PSD because I might not be able yeah. to complete that. And then my wife was very supported at the time. He said, you have done, you have come so far, so you should not quit. You should continue. And at the end, I was able to it took some time, but I was able to complete it, complete the yeah. PSD as well. So I would say, like, don't quit. Follow your dream. Yeah. If you want to do it, you can you can do it. There is like you might have to put a little bit extra efforts, but you, you will be able to do it at the end. And you will feel so proud of yourself when you see your your achievement at the end. Oh, that's such a good thing to say. And think we want to say thank you to Alok's wife for her support. <laughs> Having a supportive partner, a supportive community, a family or a friend unit. So important. It's so important to have, isn't it? Oh my gosh. That's lovely. So what kind of hobbies are you involved with? Are you still taking apart TVs in your garage or do you have other hobbies that you do? So after I moved to US, I I picked up new hobby in the carpentry. Oh, you're still building. It's still, still building. building. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so I built. So even in when I used to live in Virginia, I, we built. I built lots of self in my house, and I built. Mm-hmm. I built a dining table in my for my house for myself. And even when when I moved to Colorado, I still continued doing that. And then I built a a, a dining table for my current house too. <laughs> I love it. A scientist, engineer, and also a carpenter and furniture maker. So yeah. a Lux wife, good job. Sure, thanks. Carpenter. Yeah, yeah. And the other <laughs> hobbies, I, I I like sports. So back in Nepal, I used to play lots of soccer. I was in my college team as well. I was a I was a goalkeeper in the soccer back in Nepal in my college team. 
I continued playing that a little bit even after moving to U.S. Since I moved to U.S., uh, I started playing the volleyball a lot and then the, the softball. I oh. picked up softball at my college in uh, South Dakota State University. I have a very funny story. <laughs> I don't know if you have time to share, but I would like to Please. share. Please, I'd love to hear it. I love to yeah, hear it. I so love the, that you're involved with softball. That's fantastic. Yeah, yeah. So softball, so so uh, when I was a student, like I was uh, working as a research assistant in the lab, right? So one of the pro- project was from the NASA USG, from the NASA and USGS looking at the Hyperion data sets as well as the the Landsat, some Landsat sensors, right? And there was going to be a softball match between the USGS side of people and some people from our university. Ooh, friendly competition, I love it. Yeah, friendly competition, (laughs) right? And then my my Dr. Helder, uh, his name is Dr. Helder, he asked me, do you do you do you play softball? And then before that, I never heard of it. I mean, like, no, I, I never played softball. Then he explained, this is how the how we play the softball here, and he showed me some videos. And then I said, okay, maybe if you give me, if you let me play, I can play because like back in Nepal, like the soccer and volleyball and the cricket is the top three games that we used to play. So I used to play lots of cricket on top of the soccer as well. Although I was not in the college team on the cricket, but I used to play a cricket and I was a good batsman. And I thought, okay, I have played cricket. Maybe I'll play this softball too, right? <laughs> yeah, okay, you can play in a team. You are you are in a team. Then we went to we went to the playground to play with the USCS folks there, right? And then it was my my time to bat. I went with the with a so with a round bat, right? With a softball bat in the mm-hmm. pitcher in the in the in, in the batting field. I went there, and then the way I hold the bat, right? Uh, if you if you are familiar with the cricket, the cricket, cricket? bat is under under, under your wrist, yep. right? Whereas your uh, the softball bat is you hold up here, right? So when I when I was holding the 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 bat, I was holding like a cricket bat, right? Under under not <laughs> up but under up. And then all the all the fielders they assume like because I didn't hold the bat properly, right? It was under. They said, I don't play a lot of softball, so I, I might not be able to hit. So all the field came came closer to me, right? They thought I cannot hit. And the very first ball I hit was a home run. <laughs> oh my gosh. And I <laughs> that bet was... that shut them up real fast yeah, after then... that. And I would have been like, I want a lock on my team, please. <laughs> yeah, it was a very funny story for me. The very first ball of the softball that I hit was the home run for me. And, was... <laughs> and everybody was like, wow. <laughs> Yeah, and you were probably you probably had fun after that because that was a good yeah. one. You literally went out. I love it. Have you gone to any? Uh, sorry for getting off the path. We'll go back. But have you gone to any baseball games like in person, like baseball games yet? Yeah, yeah. So not at the university, but then when I moved to Virginia to work for NASA Langley Research Center, I went to Norfolk for some of the baseball games to watch because uh, the company provided us a lot of tickets to go to those kind of games. So I went to watch that. I liked it. And then I was also a part of the NASA Langley Research the softball team from the SSAI, and then we used to play like every week in the summer in the NASA mm-hmm. Language Research Center. So it was That's fun. That's so cool. When you come out and you're here a bit long and bring the family, you should definitely go see a, a Giants game. Um, sure. Not that I, I I don't have any of my Giants gear on right now, but the Giants are a lot of fun to watch, sure. and it's yeah. a fun thing. Sure. Thank, Thank you. you. It's, it's fantastic. If if you don't think about it, but 
you know, cricket and uh, softball, baseball, a lot of it is statistics and stuff too. So that kind of, you know, fields into your competitive and engineering side a little bit. Because a lot sure. of it has to do with statistics and stats. So yeah, when awesome. you said statistics, like I remember one of my friend at the National Language Research Center, who who is the softball team member, right? He used to keep all the stats of different players. He brought me in his office and told me, like I told him, like I don't play a uh, softball a lot, but I just played once or twice when I was like in the in in my mass in my university, and I just started playing. And, and then he called me like after the first season, he said, like your stats are much better than a lot of players in our team. And I was wow. <laughs> <That's looking here. laughs> you say, ah, oh, yeah, you know, I brought it over. You brought your A game to it. I love it. One of the other things that I wanted to ask you about, there was a, since you were talking about your time in Nepal and also uh, your time spent at Langley, sadly, in your homeland many, many uh, years ago, there was a terrible, terrible earthquake that happened. Um, absolutely tragic. I think in this article that came out with Langley, you couldn't go over, but you were able to lend your expertise, at least in a different way, using your skills as like a research scientist to help virtually I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about what you were able to do during that time, how you were able to lend some of your expertise. You know, this is just, it's so powerful because we're working in such a virtual environment now. I think it's important to talk about how you were able to help like virtually. Yes, yeah, yeah. Thank you for bringing that, Cassie. And it was a very sure. unfortunate event back in Nepal. My yeah. my parents my parents were there at the time, but uh, I was here. So when that happens, it was it was a very difficult moment for for us here. Oh my God! We yeah, we I couldn't bet. contact them. The phone line were down, and we didn't know what what's what's happening to them. What their status was, but thankfully. After some trial, after an hour or two of trying the phone call back to Nepal, I was we were able to connect with them and they were thankfully very uh, safe. Uh, but the situation was very worse there. So regarding that, when I was working as a Langley Research Center, so, so most of the work I did uh, for that earthquake was my volunteer work. So it was, it was not the, the time that I spent at the Langley Research Center, but I did as a volunteer work uh, separately for that. What we were able to do that was uh, one of our friend, his name is Dr. Chandra Giri. He works, he used to work for USCS at the time. And uh, I would just started like few years at the Langley Research Center at the time. And he created a Facebook group to create a group of volunteers to help this effort. So I was part of that part of that group. And the mm -hmm. idea was to contact the various people or personnel who is trying to help in Nepal on the site, right? So that was the one of the thing. Nepal is Nepal is mostly a mountainous region, right? Because then the Kathmandu is also uh, also uh, like a valley area, so there is lots of mountains back in Nepal. One of the thing they were very restricted about was like if they have to send the relief effort, like the food and other kind of stuff, to the to the impacted area, they have to they had to fly. Like there is because of lots of landslide, the the, the road was. Uh, close, so there is only way we can go is by the chopper, and in the mm -hmm. mountains it's very hard to land those uh, choppers, right? We were able to look at the pictures from different uh, companies here, the space pictures like from the Planet Lab, 
Digital Globe, mm. now it's called Maxar. So they were distributing free images for those impacted area. So we were able to look at the images and find the like the flat area closer to the highly populated impacted area so that helicopter can go and land in those areas. Wow. We were, we were able to do that and then provide the, the coordinates to, to the government or the other agencies, private agencies back in Nepal. And looking at those coordinates, they will fly and land in that area and uh, distribute the, the relief there. And science in real time, basically, you were able to do this. Sure, yeah. And the second thing we were able to do is like once when, when this... Uh, happens like the earthquake happens right there was lots of aftershocks as well so people yeah. people were afraid to stay inside the house so they were trying to find the open open field area where they can set up a tent and stay there and then what we were able to figure out from looking at this big picture is where are those lots of tents are being populated in the area and then and then distribute the relief effort in those areas as well. So we were able to figure out some of those areas, highly populated tent areas and flat areas where people are people are gathered and then supply the supply the relief effort in that areas. My God. First of all, I'm so glad that your family and everything was safe. It was I, I did read a little bit about that and it was just Horrible, but you know, and I, w- I know we joked earlier about like taking TVs and stuff like that apart. But being, I sure it must have felt extremely rewarding to be able to help in a virtual way and based on your own expertise and what you can provide. And this was your homeland, so I mean, science is is you know we can do a lot of stuff for fun, but gosh, having that real applications and helping people. That must have felt so good to be able to do yeah, something. Yeah, yeah. as you yeah. said, I, yeah, I was, I was, I felt very glad about the background I had in terms of the yeah. looking at the satellite pictures and obtaining lots of information. I never thought I would use that expertise in in that scenario, but I mean, like, I was able to use my expertise in that area and able to help help the affected people back home, which is pretty great too. You should be. That's fantastic. I, I wrote. Um, I wrote something down, which I think applies to you. I said that with with, uh, my interviews with the scientists over the years, something that I was really considering is that, you know, scientists are looking for ways of how things work in nature, and they often use scientific methods to figure it out, and engineers design the process. And the way that your brain is applying it, like you were looking at how you can combine it and also finding the solution for it. Um, which I think is that's a superpower, in my opinion. That is a superpower, being able to have both. So thanks for talking about that. One of the last things I want to ask you, and this is something I like to usually end on, even though we've talked about your amazing superpowers, being a combined scientist and engineer, if you didn't pursue either engineering or science, where do you think that you're, what do you think that you'd be doing if you weren't a combined scientist engineer? Yeah, that's a great question. I never thought about that, but I think I might have end up in the bank. <laughs> in the bank? I thought it would be a professional cricket player or, you know, something along those lines. <laughs> in the uh, bank. I mean, that, that, that could have been <laughs> that's better. That's statistics, yeah. But, but why I said that is um, I feel like I'm pretty good at math. All my mm. friends and like my family, they always say like you are pretty good at math. 
And then why I said that in the bank was I was working at the NASA Langley Research Center, right, as a research scientist. And I was trying to buy a house, like when you buy a house here, like before the closing date, like three days before, they, they will send you the closing disclosure documents, right, where you look at all the numbers, whether the numbers are correct or not. There was a mistake in the, in that closing documents. And then I send I send that email back to the bank saying, hey, there is some kind of mistake in this document. It's not matching up. And she looked at the document and she said, yes, you are right. There is a mistake in this document. And she was not able to figure out why why there is that mistake, why the numbers doesn't add up. And then I looked at the I looked at the document and said, hey, I I put down this much of down payment money, maybe because of this, it's not matching. And, and she said, yes, that is correct. What are you what are you doing? Do you want a job? And she offered me a job. <laughs> if you need a job, let me know. We have a position open here. So I thought, OK, <laughs> that's good to hear. So that's that why is- I like maybe in the bank. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, Alok, thank you so much for taking the time just to go through your uh, incredible journey and talk about some of the, the great applications that you were able to apply skill set to. I hope that this inspires some other young people looking to maybe get into science and engineering and love to see where your career ends up next and what great things you'll be doing at NASA Ames in the years to come. Sure. Thank you, Cassie. Thank you for your time once again. And it was great to share my experience with you. Hopefully, as you said, I might be able to inspire some young folks out here with the earth science and do great stuff. Thank you.